Well, good morning again. Uh, as always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. We're back in First Peter this week after taking a couple of weeks away. If you remember on Palm Sunday, we looked at First Peter 3, 13-17, where God told us that we must all be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. This was a call to evangelism. Evangelism that is gentle and respectful, but evangelism nonetheless. And as we turn now to the next section of First Peter, we need a bit of an introduction. Because the passage that I'm going to read in a minute is one of the most challenging passages in the Bible. It talks about Jesus preaching to spirits in prison. And then it says that they are spirits that didn't obey in the days of Noah. And that causes Peter to start thinking about baptism. And just to make us all a little bit uncomfortable, he says, baptism saves you. So that is the passage that's in front of us today. With all those packed phrases, one commentator suggests that there are 180 possible interpretations that we could come away with. We're not going to address every one of those possibilities And as always, uh, I invite anyone who continues to have questions that aren't answered today to come talk to me. Ask your questions. There is never enough time in the preaching of God's Word to answer all of the questions, but that doesn't mean they're not important. Uh, Please come and ask questions that you have that you're still wrestling with. But even this morning, there are going to be a lot of questions we have as we read and seek to understand this portion of God's Word. I'll let you know up front that I'm going to take this text in two weeks. Uh, So we're going to spend both this week and next week on this text. This week, uh, I'll introduce you to the whole passage and we'll focus in on verse 19 and some of the difficulties with that verse. And then next week, we'll save verse 21 and baptism until next week. But as I said, this passage is challenging. And I don't just mean that it's challenging for our minds. It's challenging for our hearts. The reason that it's a challenge to our hearts is because it's a passage over which Christians disagree, even Orthodox, Bible-believing Christians. And as soon as we realize that, we all have different kinds of reactions. For some of you, Christians disagreeing is the reason that you don't believe any of this. If all these guys who went to seminary and got done with their learning, can't even agree on what the Bible says, that's just proof to me that all of it isn't true. For some of you, Christians disagreeing is painful. You've been a part of churches that divided, or ran a pastor off, or ran your family off over doctrinal disagreements. Others of you get a little bit excited when we talk about Christians disagreeing. You like arguing and debating and making points and counterpoints, maybe even a little bit more than applying the text to your own life. And then still others of you are rolling your eyes, thinking, do these people even know what happened to me this week? I don't have time for some nitpicky doctrinal disagreement. I need to hear what God says to me. Even with all those different possible responses, 
we're going to hear God's Word today. We're not going to skip over this portion of Scripture because it's confusing. We're not going to ignore it because we don't like disagreement. We're going to trust what Jesus said, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. Not just the ones we like, or the ones that seem important to us. We need all of God's Word. We come to God this morning hungry and needy, and He promises that He will feed us with His Word. And as we come to this difficult part of God's Word, I'd like to offer you a different response than the ones that I just mentioned. I think as Christians, we have another option for what to do when we come to difficult texts, difficult passages of Scripture like this one. This comes from C.S. Lewis. It's in the context of him talking about why he grew to like challenging doctrinal books. He says this. He says, For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pen in their hand. Now, I don't know if you saw the sign when you walked in the door, but there is no smoking allowed in here. So we can't do the pipe in the teeth. But we can pick up a pencil or a pen and dig into a tough bit of theology. But we need to get straight what C.S. Lewis just said about why we are doing this. We aren't just trying to find right answers. We aren't just trying to win an argument or nerd out for a bit on theology. We are asking God to make our hearts sing. We are asking that He would warm our hearts, that He would stir our affections for Jesus, that He would cause us to long for Him more and trust in Him more throughout all the circumstances of our life. So before we hear this word from the Lord, let's ask that He would do that in us. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know Your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear Your Word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, I'd like to start by telling you what Peter is doing in these verses. Because Peter's overall aim is not disputed. It's not a point of disagreement. No matter what people think about the confusing parts, there is vast agreement on what Peter is doing and saying in this section. Throughout this letter, Peter has been connecting our suffering to the suffering of Jesus. We are exiles in this world. We are going to experience suffering as Christians. And Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He encourages us in our suffering by telling us that we are joining Jesus in His suffering. That's what Peter has hammered home to us again and again in this letter. But in this section, he gives us a different motivation. He does connect our suffering to the suffering of Jesus. Look again at verse 18 with me. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. But differently than he does in the rest of the letter, Peter moves on. He tells us what happens after Christ's suffering and His death. He moves on to what happened next. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That phrase, made alive in the Spirit, is His resurrection. Jesus didn't stay dead. His suffering wasn't the end of the story. Jesus died, yes, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, He rose again from the dead. And then Peter doesn't stop there. What happened after Jesus rose from the dead? Skip down to the very end of verse 21. He mentions again the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. That phrase, gone into heaven, is talking about Jesus' ascension. Jesus died and rose from the dead, and then He ascended into heaven. And Peter tells us in Acts 2 that He sat down. He sat down on a throne. He is ruling and reigning over all the earth, as Peter says here, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Peter has told us that Christians must suffer. He has told us that we are exiles in the world, that we are alienated from our friends and neighbors and classmates. And he has told us that we should take encouragement because we are joining with Jesus in His suffering. We are following in His steps. But now, right on the heels of telling us that we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us, Peter reminds us that there is something after Jesus' death. There is something after the grave. There is something after suffering. Victory. Conquering. Triumph. 
The story of Jesus is not just a story of humiliation. It is also a story of exaltation. You would have no hope in you if Jesus didn't suffer and die. But you would also have no hope in you if He did not rise from the dead. He accomplished victory in His resurrection. The Christian life is not simply a story of suffering and humility and meekness. It is that. But as Peter says in chapter 5, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see the contrast Peter makes? Suffering for a little while. Victory forever. So with Christ, also with all those who are His. Suffering now. Victory forever. Beloved, your suffering is but for a moment. Even now, God is preparing for you an eternal and never-ending weight of glory in Christ. We proclaim a crucified Christ, but that crucified Christ has risen, and He sits as the King who has conquered His enemies. That is the gist of what Peter is saying in these verses, and that is wonderfully and vastly agreed upon. He is telling us about the victory of Jesus. However, Peter adds a couple of things in these verses that are hard to understand. Verse 18 moves from Jesus' death to His victorious resurrection. And then verse 22 moves from Jesus' resurrection to His victorious ascension. But there are three verses in between those verses. If you look at the insert in your bulletin, you'll see a chart. Complicated text gets a complicated outline for the sermon. So you'll see a chart in there that I think is the best way for us to understand what Peter is doing in these in-between verses. It's clear that the focus in the passage is on Jesus' victory. And I believe verse 19 points to the judgment of His enemies that came about because of His victory. And then verse 21 points to the salvation of His people that came about because of His victory. And then you'll see that verse 20 kind of gives the link between the two by talking about the days of Noah. But first is judgment for God's enemies, and second is salvation for God's people. And we're going to spend the rest of the morning talking about the judgment of Christ's victory that we find here in verse 19. We'll hold verse 21, for next week. So let's read verses 18 through 20 again to get the context for verse 19, and then we'll begin looking more closely at it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So kind of a summary of the section that we're looking at is Jesus went and proclaimed, 
or preached to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. And there are four questions that we can ask about this section that help us get at exactly what Peter is saying in this passage. And they all center on this proclamation that Jesus makes. So first, when did Jesus proclaim? Second, where did he proclaim? Third, to whom did he proclaim? And then finally, what did he proclaim? So in answer to those four questions, here is what I believe this text is teaching us. During the time between Jesus' death and resurrection, while his body was in the grave and his spirit was in the place of the dead, he proclaimed his victory to the powers of evil that tempt and torment his people. That's a short summary. I'm going to repeat it. During the time between Jesus' death and resurrection, while his body was in the grave and his spirit was in the place of the dead, he proclaimed victory to the powers of evil that tempt and torment his people. So when did Jesus proclaim? Between the time of his death and his resurrection. Where did he proclaim it? In the place of the dead, where his spirit rested while his body was in the tomb. To whom did he proclaim? To the demonic spirits, fallen angels, the one who had tormented and tempted his people since the beginning of the world. And what did he proclaim? He proclaimed his victory over them. That the new age had come and that they were being trampled under his feet. So let's dive in a little bit more to these. First, we'll look at the when. This is talking about the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection when he was in the grave. If you look back at our verses, verse 18 talks about Jesus' death and resurrection there at the end. Peter says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the, in the Spirit. And then Peter stops and he takes a little aside. He mentions the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, and it causes him to think of something else that Jesus did in the Spirit. He says at the beginning of verse 19, in which he went. In the Spirit, Jesus did something else. Something other than raising from the dead. And then after the whole aside, when you get to the end of verse 21, Peter comes back to the resurrection again and then moves on to talk about Jesus' ascension in verse 22. So verse 19 is this time between Jesus' death and His resurrection. So what was this thing that Jesus also did in the Spirit in between His death and resurrection. Verse 19 says that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. He proclaimed something. But who did he proclaim to? Who were these spirits in prison who did not obey in the days of Noah? So it could be that these spirits are people They were people in the days of Noah who refused to listen to Noah's warning that the flood was coming, that God's judgment was coming upon them. And now, as Peter is writing, they are spirits in prison. They've died. They've now died, and so these are spirits of the people who are imprisoned in judgment. 
that could be the case, that these are the spirits of people who were around at the time of Noah. But there's a lot of evidence that suggests that these spirits are something else. Not people, but fallen angels, demons. And it looks as if Peter is drawing on a particular part of the Noah story when he mentions these spirits in prison. If you remember back to Genesis 6, just before the flood, God paints a horrendous picture of humanity at that time. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then God says that he's going to blot them out with a flood. But just before that, we get this really curious statement about the lead up to things getting that bad among humanity. Verse 2 says that the sons of God took the daughters of man as their wives and they multiplied. And it's a confusing passage to be sure, but there's a long tradition in Judaism that says that these sons of God are fallen angels, demonic spirits who had abandoned heaven. Just as the serpent did in the garden, these evil spirits tempted humans and drew them away from God into sin and debauchery to the point that the whole human race, other than Noah and his family, were engulfed in wickedness. And because you and I are modern people, we often either dismiss the idea of angels and demons and supernatural forces or just choose to not think about them influencing us. But Peter's original hearers knew more than we know today what Ephesians 6 says, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Because you and I are in a naturalistic world, we often think of our enemies as only natural. People, and family history, and brain chemistry, and circumstances. But the Bible tells us that there are evil spirits that are seeking to devour us, to draw us away from God. Peter actually mentions these evil spirits or fallen angels in his other letter. 2 Peter. This is what he says in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. He says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, or hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So Peter, in both 1 and 2 Peter, is working with this idea that there are fallen angels who have rejected God and fallen from heaven and are now in prison. They still have the opportunity to tempt and corrupt mankind, but they know a day is coming when they will be judged. And this is also where Peter ends our section today, in verse 22. He says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. That draws on Psalm 110 that says that Christ's enemies are being made a footstool for His feet. And so the answer to who is Jesus proclaiming this to is evil spirits, demonic forces, those who have worked to corrupt mankind and lead them into sin, 
since the beginning of the world. Now, I believe this also answers the next question for us. Where did Jesus proclaim? Because in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says that those spirits, those fallen angels, were imprisoned in Tartarus. Uh, that's the Greek word. In the ESV, it's translated hell. So you could get from that that Jesus went to hell to proclaim to these spirits. And some of you are picking up on the fact that we just said this earlier today in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. But we need to make sure that we understand what we are confessing when we say that. We absolutely do not mean that Jesus spent the time between his death and his resurrection in the place of torment and judgment prepared for those who reject God, the place that we most often refer to as hell. That is not what we believe when we say that in the Apostles' Creed. It's not where Jesus went. That's not what any branch of Orthodox Christianity believes or teaches. Jesus took the wrath and judgment of God on the cross. And when he says, it is finished, as he dies, it was finished. There was no more judgment, no more punishment for him to take for our sins. He had completely completed his work of atonement on the cross. To say that he went to the place of torment after his death is wrong. That's not what Christians believe. It also explicitly denies the statement that Jesus made to the thief on the cross next to him. He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So when you say those words in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, you are not saying that after Jesus' death, he went to the place of torment and punishment. So you may be asking, what am I saying? Where did Jesus go? The Latin phrase in the Apostles' Creed that we confess each week is he descended ad infernos. It's fine to translate that into hell. John Calvin and many other Reformed Christians believe that that phrase was metaphorically referring to the hell or judgment that Jesus experienced on the cross, the full weight of the judgment of God that came upon him. But the better translation is probably he descended to the place of the dead. What's the difference between the place of the dead and hell? The Bible uses different words when it talks about the place people go when they die, especially before the resurrection of Jesus. So you'll hear words like you heard in our psalm reading today. Sheol, Hades, Tartarus, Gehenna, or even paradise. And the distinctions can be a bit confusing, but what is clear is that there is a general place where all people went when they died. And within that place, there were divisions. Old Testament saints, the righteous, do not suffer when they die. But the unrighteous do. And an important passage to understand this is Luke 16. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In that passage, it seems that there is a general, broad place of the dead that has separations or divisions in it. So Lazarus dies and goes to a place, and he is at rest. The rich man dies, 
and goes to a place and is being tormented, but they talk to one another. They are aware of one another. They're still in the same general place of the dead. There's one place of the dead with distinct divisions. When Jesus died, His body stayed in the tomb, and His Spirit went to the place where the Spirit of all God's people went when they died under the Old Covenant. This section in the place of the dead where the believers, where saints are at rest. No more suffering. But while there, just like Lazarus in Luke 16, he was able to speak to everyone in the place of the dead. Not just the righteous spirits, but also the spirits of the unrighteous and even imprisoned demons. This was the view of Jesus' descent that the Westminster Confession took when it says that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. Do you see how they're trying to protect from that understanding that Jesus suffered more after the cross? He remained under the power of death, but saw no corruption. Now that is a lot of delineating and complexity. But I think it's important when we say something week after week, when we confess it and say we are confessing this with the church universal, that we make sure we know what we are saying when we confess that. And maybe even more importantly, what we are not saying. When Jesus died, He did not descend to more torment. He took all of God's wrath for our sins on the cross. He descended to the place of the dead awaiting His resurrection. So the answer to the question, where did Jesus proclaim, is the place of the dead, where His Spirit resided between His death and resurrection. So that leads us to this final question. What did He say? What did Jesus proclaim to these imprisoned spirits in the place of the dead as He awaited His resurrection? This is where I think Peter's point of encouragement for his readers is so important. Jesus has just died. He has suffered the seeming defeat of death. His enemies look like they have won. And it is right here, at his greatest point of humiliation, in the moment that he is under the power of death, that Jesus looks at his enemies, those who have wreaked havoc, on His good creation, and on His people since the very beginning, and He proclaims victory. He tells them it's over. It's finished. The seed of the woman has come to crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of Abraham has taken the curse for His people. Great David's greater son has arisen and is sitting at the throne of God, making His enemies a footstool. This is the message that Jesus said in weakness from the cross. It is finished. And you can hear Him echoing it again and again, the same phrase over and over in the presence of His enemies. It is finished. It is finished. The terror you have had on My people is finished. Death is swallowed up in victory. Sin is defeated. Your power is stripped from you. And you are conquered. It is finished. 
This is where the rest of the passage goes for Peter. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He was made alive again in the power of the Spirit, and He ascended into heaven to sit on a throne at the right hand of the Father. There He sits with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. This is the message that Peter's audience needed to hear, and it's the message we need to hear as well. He is speaking to a people like us who are in a corrupt society, a world that is hostile to God and even to His people. He has told us again and again that we must endure, that we must endure suffering and shame and difficulty. He has just called us in our last passage to something a little bit more bold. We're not just to sit tight until Jesus comes back, but to go on the offensive. Tell people in this hostile world about Jesus, about the hope that is in you, even if it means more suffering, and to motivate us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. He says, you do have real spiritual enemies. He says in chapter 5 that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You have spiritual enemies that trouble you and threaten you in this hostile world. In fact, they've been doing that since the very beginning of the world, since the days of Noah. But do you know what Jesus did to them? He conquered them. He crushed them. He defeated them. Jesus went to them in His moment of greatest weakness and He declared His victory in their faces. He is now making them a footstool under His feet. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to Himself, by ruling and defending us, and by restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Beloved, Jesus does not just forgive your sin. He restrains and conquers everyone who would harm you. Everyone who would draw you away from Him and into sin. There is no one to fear anymore. Remember the question Peter asked in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is the answer. No one. No one can ultimately harm you because everyone who would cause you harm, every enemy who wants to devour you has been crushed under the mighty foot of the risen Jesus. Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph o'er His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. Beloved, you will join Jesus in His suffering, in the here and now. But that suffering is only a light and momentary affliction. And it is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory in Christ. The glory of His victory. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so weak and helpless And so we praise You afresh that You are strong for us. That in the strength of the resurrection, Jesus conquered all of our enemies. Everything that would cause us harm and suffering and sin. We pray now that You would protect us and that You would strengthen us 
to proclaim Christ's victory to the world around us, even if it causes suffering. Give us the strength of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.